0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. On June 26th at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, LA Opera On Air will return to KUSC radio station with a broadcast of Billy Budd. With an all-male cast of 25 solo roles and vast choral and orchestral forces, all conducted by James Conlon, it's the most grandly scaled of Britain's many operas. Liam Bonner, Richard Croft, and Greer Grimsley take the leading roles. And of course, June is also lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer LGBTQ pride month. Benjamin Britton, the composer, was an openly gay man in a time and place where homosexuality was illegal. In this behind the curtain conversation, LA Operas Connects Vice President Stacey Brightman speaks with Dr. Mitchell Morris, UCLA's Chair of Musicology and Chair for LGBTQ Studies. Dr. Morris speaks about Britton, his work, and how, or if, this opera is relevant in relation to how far the LGBTQ community has come since the opera's premiere in 1951. Please note, this frank conversation touches on adult themes and may not be
1: appropriate for all listeners. This is about envy and projection. Claggart hates Billy because Billy has the good stuff that Claggart does not. Billy is good looking. Billy is good. Billy is kind. Everyone loves Billy.
0: Mitchell, can you start us off today by talking a little bit about the plot of Billy Budd? And then if you don't mind, speak about Britain, his work, this opera in the context of Pride. Is this opera problematic in relation to how far the LGBTQ community has
1: come since this opera was written? Well, Stacy, these are really excellent questions, and I'm going to break down your very complex set of questions into three groups and talk about them one at a time. First of all, it's really worth reminding everybody of the plot. If you've never read the novella, which has its own interesting history, which I will talk about in an essay later, the opera and the films based on the novella and the opera have their interesting histories as well. Uh, First, it's extremely important to note that this is from a specific year. The opera is set in the year 1797, and that matters. Uh, England is struggling with revolutionary France. They are terrified of all of the dangerous ideas of republicanism that are emanating not only from their regicidal enemies across the English Channel, but also from their unruly colonies that have run off and left them. Uh, So they're really quite stressed. And it is very clear to the authorities, to the powers that be in the British Empire, that many of their people are restive. So it's in the backdrop of political unrest, particularly in the Navy, that this opera takes place. We are on a ship, the ship Indomitable. Originally in Melville's uh, novella, I think it was called The Bella potent or, you know, The Powerful in War. Instead, it's the ship Indomitable, captained by Edward Fairfax Veer, known affectionately to his men as a starry Veer because he's very saintly and very, very restrained and Apollonian and very, very Peter Pears in so many ways. The British Navy in the 1790s and the early 19th century, like most European navies, was in the habit of a thing called impressment. Now, we vaguely hear that impressment was a grievance that helped lead to the War of 1812, but we often don't think about what it was in really practical terms. A naval ship belonging to some country like England or France uh, would stop a merchant sailing vessel. And if there was a citizen of their country on board, they would simply appropriate them as free labor. That is to say, it was a form of indenturement that really mostly approximated slavery. They would take you and you had no choice. Um, With the conflict between Britain and the United States, Part of the difficulty came because as far as the British were concerned, Americans were simply wayward British subjects who could be impressed right alongside their own. But even if you were a subject of Great Britain, impressment was a harsh and horrible thing to happen to you. Billy Budd is a young sailor. He is repeatedly indicated as extremely handsome. He's charismatic. He's friendly. He's charming. Yes, he's a little Lil Abner in certain ways. He's a little bit of a dumb hick in certain ways, but he's a really nice guy and he really helps weld them together and helps them wield themselves as a fighting force. So he's immediately attractive to everyone. Unfortunately, Billy Budd was a sailor impressed from a vessel from Bristol called The Rights of Man. Now, of course, he's being named after the famous revolutionary pamphlet by Thomas Paine. But calling anything in a British context the rights of man in the 1790s is a sure recipe to being tarred as an associate of subversives. It's essentially like a kind of red scare. If you are not a communist, but you're on a ship like this, then you're obviously a pinko and a fellow traveler. So Bud comes on board already under a cloud of suspicion because he's just unlucky enough to be on a ship formerly that has a potentially revolutionary name. Nevertheless, Billy Bud is the archetypal Gomer Pyle. He loves his superior officers, even when they're bad to him. He strives constantly to be, you know, to do his duty, to be a hero. He swears on dying devotion to Starry Veer, even before he meets him, just on the strength of his reputation as a great captain. But Billy Budd, who seems so perfect, the ideal sailor, the golden boy, has what the opera terms a defect. That is to say, if you were interested in disability studies, you'd be all over this like a duck on a June bug because Billy has a stammer. His stammer manifests itself mostly in moments of extreme emotion, and that's the problem. That's his Achilles heel because it is the thing that gets exploited in him. Against him, we have Claggart. Claggart is essentially the head of the ship's secret police. He's the master at arms, and his job is to commit most of the brutal violence against the regular seamen. So his task is to hurt people, to dominate, terrorize, and bully all the sailors, to keep them placated and subservient to their masters, the midshipmen and the officers of the ship. So he's that classic sort of enforcer role. I didn't do it. It's him that did it. It's my sergeant who is torturing you, not me. Claggart immediately loathes Billy. And he's very remarkably self-aware. Claggart is an extraordinarily interesting character because he fundamentally knows he hates Billy because Billy has that which he lacks. Billy is good looking. Billy is good. Billy is kind. Everyone loves Billy. No one loves Jemmy Legs. No one loves Claggart or ever will. Everybody hates him. They despise him and they won't have anything to do with him. Now, there are two good ways of reading this situation. One is my friends, the psychoanalysts, would say this is about envy and projection. Claggart hates Billy because Billy has the good stuff that Claggart does not. Claggart is very much like those men who murder their families saying, if I can't have you, then no one will, because he will destroy it rather than let it be the possession of someone else or even exist. He must annihilate it. Part of it is a metaphysical thing. And in fact, Forster, in his uh, discussions of the book, in aspects of the novel, really mostly reads it that way. In fact, Forster insists Claggart does feel a kind of desire, but it's a bottled up, twisted, warped kind of desire that doesn't go anywhere. That is to say, for Forster, Claggart is sort of metaphysically envious And yeah, it might look like same-sex desire, but that's incidental to what's really at stake, this kind of destruction. E.M. Forster was a crucial figure in the transmission of the sort of interest in Billy Budd to Benjamin Britten. Um, Forster was part of the sort of Cambridge vaguely homosocial group called the Apostles. He then sort of went and was part of the Bloomsbury group and he was really a very powerful critical force in the early 20th century. He was very openly gay in the peculiar way that I'm going to talk about fairly soon and was uh, very, very committed to a lot of the same ideals that Britain was, just like W.H. Auden, the poet, who was also a great mentor to the young Benjamin Britten. They were all pacifists. They were all globalist and internationalist by outlook. Forster very famously said at one point that if he were put in a position where he had to choose between betraying his country or betraying a friend, He would hope he had the guts to betray his country rather than his friend. And for Forster and certainly for Auden and for Isherwood and folks like that, they especially were conflicted and anguished over World War II. World War I was bad enough because it seemed to have no rationale whatsoever other than bloody-minded kings who were all first cousins trying to kill each other. But they hated the Nazis, but they couldn't imagine the possibility that they would be forced to shoot someone they knew. Especially Isherwood, he'd spent vast amounts of time in Berlin. He had German lovers. The thought that he could kill an ex-lover because he had a gun and was supposed to do so was more than he could stand. So much so that he came to America. So much so that Britain and Paris followed him for a time until they could not leave England and went back. Peter Pears was Britain's life partner, his lover, and the person for whom he wrote all of the major tenor roles in every one of his operas. I think of it as an extremely difficult relationship because some of the characters Peter embodied are pretty sketchy. And I just don't really know what you would do if your husband brought you an offer and said, here, honey, there's a part for an evil child molesting ghost. I thought of you. That's a spiky present to be giving somebody. Um, So Forrester had admired Peter Grimes a great deal. Britain's first enormously successful opera, set uh, in Suffolk on the English coast, um, it premiered in forty-six. But he had conceived the idea in, of all places, Escondido, because he and Paris were visiting a friend in Escondido, and he happened to be thumbing through an issue of Gramophone magazine when he read an article on the poet George Crabb, who is the source of the story for Peter Grimes, an article written by E.M. Forster. So these connections are old and very durable and go back very far. Forster's ideas about this helped inform the creation of the opera in important ways. Forster was a pacifist. Forster was interested in same-sex eroticism. Forster's most famous work in some ways is an unpublished novel. His novel Morris, which is a gay romance that ends happily, Weirdly enough, was the model for D.H. Lawrence, Lady Chatterley's Lover, because Lawrence knew Forster really well and had been able to read the manuscript. But Forster did not publish it in his lifetime because he didn't want the scandal of being, you can be open, but you can be Liberace open. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, So Forster was a pacifist. Forster was really, really interested in the problem of war. And so for Forster, it's about, it's not about Billy Budd. The opera is in fact never about Billy Budd. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Forster was interested in Claggart. Britain was interested in Veer. He thought that Veer was a really crucial character. So what happens is Claggart has a hostility to Billy and does what he can to try to destroy him. He tries to put him in a compromising position where he can be accused of mutiny. Because at that specific moment, mutiny is a pure and simple death penalty. There are no choices. You don't, go to, you don't go to the guardhouse. You don't get locked up forever. You hang. End of story. That's all there is to it. And that's what Claggart wants. So in desperation, eventually in the opera, he comes up with a false accusation and goes to Veer. Veer says, well, I want to hear from Billy because the men seem to love him. And he stages a confrontation which is unfortunately the worst kind of confrontation for Billy to have. In a room with three people, Claggart accuses Billy of being a mutineer. Billy's heightened emotions mean that he can't speak. When he can't speak, his only response is the language of physicality. He lashes out at one moment in one blow and it's unfortunately the kind of blow that lands so as to kill Claggart. Now, there are two death penalty cases on the floor here because striking a superior officer under the Articles of War is already a death penalty conviction and murder is a second. Veer immediately summons his officers to hold a court. Veer refuses to be the judge. Veer refuses to testify about anything but the facts, which are in this context completely misleading. Veer allows Billy to be sentenced to death. And in fact, Billy is, is, is hanged from the art arm the next day. And we are told this story by the aged Captain Veer who keeps asking what has he done because he could have been saved, I could have saved him, he really was innocent, etc." Although of course he was guilty. And that is where the opera ends with Veer taking false comfort in the spectacle of Billy, even though Billy is dead and Claggard is dead and he essentially failed in every one of his duties as a captain. So it's an interesting piece. It ends, it's a tragedy, like most good operas tend to be in the 20th century. It does not end well for anyone. It's a genuinely sad piece. I will admit I am one simply to laugh heartily at the death of Little Nell and things like that. But there are places in Billy Budd that kind of choke me up because it really is that powerful and moving. As far as openly gay was, now, that was a very complex situation. Um, Let me remind you that it was in 1896 that Oscar Wilde was found guilty of gross indecency and sentenced to hard labor at Reading Jail. Now, the story that we're usually told is that this immediately cast a pall and a gloom over all of England, and rich homosexuals ran to France instantly, and there was some of that. But there were at the same time surprisingly large numbers of people that we would probably call gay now, they wouldn't necessarily used the term then, um, who were able to continue their particular lives. This was true in Nazi Germany, I'm afraid, as well, where if you think one particular way about homosexuality and male bonding, then you're just a Boy Scout leader and nobody's asking what you're doing on those camping trips. You're probably safe. If you are walking around in women's clothes like Charlotte von Malsdorf in Berlin, it's a wonder she wasn't arrested and gassed. You know, if you were a particular kind of same-sex attracted man who could perform a traditional masculinity, you could hide behind it. Now, in England, as in the United States, there are various ways around this. Let's say that you are not necessarily going to be great at performing as a soldier. Well, you can still take refuge, for instance, in various other personas that you can operate in. I want you to think for a minute, this may seem like this coming out of nowhere, but I want you to think a minute about Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes might be what we would call now asexual. He displays not the slightest interest in any kind of erotic experience, arguably even with Irene Adler, but he doesn't have to because his persona as the perfectly cold intellectual sort of problem solver is enough of a kind of masculinity to keep him safe. You can, by the 1920s, get away with being a pansy again because the 20s are a period of great social license thanks to prohibition, the bright young people in England. There is this general loosening of morality and all kinds of crazy stuff goes on. You know, if you watch something like those old BBC Flenny redos of Brideshead Revisited, some of that behavior is ridiculous. But in fact, it passed for customary in places like Oxford or Cambridge. You had to be protected by class privilege to get away with it. If you were a working class guy caught having around with your boyfriend, you were going to jail or worse. If you were upper class or middle class, you could usually get out of it. This, by the way, is also why all the nonsense about Tchaikovsky committing suicide is so ridiculous. He was an aristocrat. And the Tsar cared so little about this kind of thing that one of his major explorers in Siberia had a line in his budget for his boyfriend with the Tsar's approval. For an upper-class man, the world was anything you wanted it to be. If you observed a little propriety, and that's where the problem of the open secret comes in. You can be openly gay as long as you never say the words and you never indicate that you are anything but a comfortable old bachelor pair who live and work together. He's my teammate. He's my roommate. He's my work partner. It's like the Boston marriage of the 19th century with all those ladies who have dogs, not children, and they will never ever marry. An open secret depends on the patience and tolerance of everyone around them, and it is always potentially vulnerable. But while it's in force, you can do amazing things. And now I go back to Liberace. Liberace participated in a particularly camp and glittery version of this because, you know, you watch some of the old footage and your jaw hits the floor. How could he get away with that? How is it possible? Not only did he get away with it, those old ladies loved him. They wanted him. But the thing is, during his life, he never said the word gay. His mother apparently referred to all the hustlers he lived with as his hillbillies. So that's the kind of world Britain participated in. But according to my old teacher, Philip Brett, it was not without its difficulties because What the gay mafia of London could not apparently forgive is that Britain himself was not a licentious person. He was a bit priggish. You know, his father was a dentist and he was a little straight-laced and stiff about things. And he wasn't really willing to sort of, you know, dance with Prince Margaret and pee in the punch bowl. So he wouldn't do that kind of thing. In fact, he was so resolutely unglittery that he and Peter Pears moved to Suffolk. Suffolk was an odd choice and it threatened a lot of people in that particular arts world. Um, It also did not necessarily help them that Britain's interest was not in capital A art. Britain was really interested in music for use Britain liked pieces that educated. Britain liked music for kids. He liked music for amateurs. He liked music that would actually enable people to use it in their everyday life. And that was very much against the current of what was most fashionable at that time as well. So he was openly gay, but it was an open secret that he was gay. He was protected by class privilege, by his pursuit of respectability, and by the fact that he still actually knew people in the Bohemian side of things enough to sort of give him a little bit of perspective, but he was subject to barbed backhanded insults. There's a really famous nasty crack from Stravinsky, who of all people should not be making it considering who he hung out with, about gentlemen composers. There was very clearly a sort of smack at Benjamin living with Peter. So it's a very weird space and one that was really necessary before Stonewall. Um, You know, I regularly teach classes on LGBTQ studies. And one thing that I can tell you about the children is that for a bunch of reasons, none of them their fault, they do not have much access to the history of the really complicated things that fall into these traditions. Um, The term gay, I would date it to before the Oxford English Dictionary because they're notoriously stodgy. So I'm pretty sure that the term gay would have been used by some people by the 1890s, but there were other people at the same time who'd said, gay, what's that? That's like what you call prostitutes, right? I'm a Uranian. I am a third sex person. I am this, I am that, I am a pansy, I am a sodomite, I am. You know, there are lots of different words because In fact, there is no one one so-called gay sexuality, just like there's no one kind of straightness. But imagine that if you're a straight person, that you're suddenly in a world that really wants you to boutique yourself. They want you to say, ah, straight isn't good enough. You really got to give us a better description. What subcategory do you belong in? And people were trying these on as experimental identities all the way through the 20th century. Hell, the children still are. That's why people get so stressed out about pronouns right now and about various sort of identifications. They are testing things to see what makes the most sense, just as people have always done. This is no different. The problem is that because of AIDS, because of the change in media because of the dramatic death of so many of their elders and because the U.S. in particular has policies that means that no sane gay adult wants to get too close to kids lest they get in trouble. That means that cultural transmission is always challenging. So now you'll have students who will say, well, I don't like the term transsexual, even though there are people that they know who that's what they grew up with. So it's all really complicated and I get very vexed about it because my belief is that you know you should really let anybody call themselves what they want to be called because there are a lot of possible people you can be in this world. And that's how I think about that particular aspect. Now as far as pride goes, I got to be honest with you. Until you asked if it might seem irrelevant or even offensive to people, that had never occurred to me. But that's because of my particular perspective. Here I am, I am nearly 60 years old. I have seen a lot of things happen in my life. And so my sense of this is, this is a historical moment that I have some overlap with, but I also have some serious divergence with. And in moral terms, it makes Makes me less uncomfortable than some of other some of Britain's other operas. And this is about a problem about the way that our culture has changed. I don't know that it's a problem, but it's a sign of how our culture has changed. Let me switch tracks for a second and ask any of you who are listening to this podcast the last time you saw a Shirley Temple movie from the 30s. Were you uncomfortable? I bet you were. That little girl is sexualized in ways that feel terrible to us, terrible to us. I can't teach the films anymore. I can teach a Shirley Temple film about as easily as I can teach Gone with the Wind, because it's tough to take. It takes way too long to say, we've got to really understand the context of this because it's hard. In some ways, there's always a risk in some of Britain's operas. There's a risk in Peter Grimes, and there's really a risk in Turn of the Screw, and in Death in Venice. There are powerful works with really distinguished lineages and all of that, but the question of children is harder than the questions raised in Billy Budd, it seems to me. And the opera is gentler with adult and child relationships in some ways than it is with Veer, whom it handles pretty rough. I will say, though, that to be fair, I think that when children are involved in Britain's operas, they're actually th- the operas on their side. The opera knows, for instance, in Turn of the Screw, that the, ch- the kids have no hope, right? All four adults, whether they're ghosts or human, they are going to get used by everybody. Because that's what adults do to children in Britain's world. Um, In this opera, that doesn't seem to interfere in the same way. What it does do is it gives you a chance, especially if you're thinking about male relationships, to question some of the things that are being critiqued by Forster and Britton, and to think about the alternative traditions that they're coming out of. Now, the pacifism is actually part of a really interesting and distinguished lineage that goes back through Forrester to an English philosopher and social, uh, sort of social activist and writer named Edward Carpenter. Carpenter was a vegetarian, pacifist, gay activist before anybody was. He also went to New Jersey specifically to meet Walt Whitman. And his ideas about democracy and male relationships are very much like those of Whitman. So if you think about Whitman's ideal of democracy, what Whitman imagines a kind of homosocial relationship, really homosexual relationship, where we are all friends and free and equal because we're actually involved with each other. And so what Carpenter tended to do is he tended to imagine what I will later talk about as a kind of good utopianism, a utopianism where people really are treating one another as equals and sort of being, you know, we two boys together clinging kind of thing. Um, it's a world that seems pretty same sex and solitary, but probably written and Carpenter would have sort of said there should be a women's world too. And if they understood anything that there were trans folks, they would have probably said, trans world is fine. And they probably would have seen some opportunity to move between them. So that was a really important sort of locus of this kind of teaching. Um, In fact, Forster credits Carpenter with awakening his idea of sexuality. When he went to visit Carpenter and then famously, at one point Carpenter touches his back, which he did to a lot of people just this sort of gentle sort of rest on the lower spine and it was like an electric thrill went through Forrester and suddenly this whole world like opens to him. So that's a really important part of this particular story that there's this ideal male community that they're fantasizing about that doesn't actually exist the way historical male communities exist. Historically Male same-sex groups like that are used as instruments of force in one way or another. That's as far back as we can really go. They are used either to kill your neighbors or to kill some animals or to build something really big. In order to accomplish things like that, you usually need a great deal of male bonding. Just go ahead and sort of imagine preparing your football team, but then you know, fill it with steroids. That's the kind of bad utopianism they're trying to war against. It's a utopianism that aims to violence, that aims to terror, that is rigidly authoritarian, rigidly hierarchical, that summons as many homosexual energies as possible to channel them into force. You get everybody really covertly excited with each other so that you can use that energy in order to hurt someone else. This is why the Nazis had the Night of the Long Knives. They needed to purge the open gay people so that they could have those energies back to use as they wanted. We have lots of unpleasant stuff that will help support that argument, but you may trust me that this is probably ultimately behind the weird kind of Athenian boy love cult that flourished in classical Athens. It's probably a descendant of an old warrior initiation. That's clearly what's going on on the ship, right? We all know the old sort of joke that, you know, the distinguished traditions of the British Navy are hundreds of years of rum, sodomy, and the lash, and that kind of summons it up. You drank because you really had to to be able to choke down the food and the water. Sodomy, well, there you are, a bunch of guys on a boat. Well, what's going to happen? And the lash because a ship is an authoritarian structure that depends on absolute obedience, no less than Stalin's Russia. And they will, you know, to be flogged is not just somebody took a rope and smacked you. They used a cat of nine tails. They dug chunks out of your back, permanently scarring you. If you've ever seen pictures of slaves that had been whipped and how, you know, hundreds, you know decades later, their backs are still just complete knots of scars, this is what we're talking about is a regular, regular thing. And why do we do this? Because we want to kill another group of people specifically the evil French. Don't like the French. Don't like their Frenchified ways. The French are just monsters as far as this world is displayed. So what it means is that Veer is actually a master of manipulation. Because you have to manipulate people into being willing to dehumanize themselves that far. You have to force soldiers to learn how to do it and veer is good at it in fact the opera shows repeated moments where he's essentially hornswogging everybody he first of all deceives himself because his whole sort of framework about i could have saved him but he saved me what does that mean precisely how did he save you you got a chance to see a handsome guy dangle from a rope what did that result in it resulted in the mutiny you said you were trying to quell It was almost like you thought, well, if we have a little mutiny, we can beat them up now and then there won't be a larger one, which I think is really ultimately the goal. Um, He loves to quote classics in order to sort of justify himself that he's involved in a noble enterprise. Famously in the book, everybody knows he's suffering about all this. How do they know? Because he suffers privately in public where everybody can see all the time. Um, and this is all because they're so frightened of mutiny and of uprising and of the possibility that the common soldiers and sailors may want more than the sort of miserable wages they have. In fact, the, um, the rebellions they talk about, the Spitalfield and the Noor, were actually rebellions of whole anchorages who said, we would like food that doesn't kill us and we would like more pay than we got 100 years ago. That was its fundamental need. It was a strike before the term, actually. So really, the opera is fighting a good utopia which never quite forms in the officer's corps and a bad utopia that they succeed in reinstalling, which fits very, very well with Forster's ideas of this is a a tragic story.
0: For someone who may be listening to Billy Budd for the first time, What would you want them to take particular note of? Or what would you want them to keep at the front as they as they go into it? And maybe that's that it's not actually about Billy at all.
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that. It is about Billy as an object of desire, but he has no volition of his own. He's like the girl. You know, in the classic way that we think about film, there are lots of girls in the film to be looked at they don't really have our autonomy. Think about poor Kim Novak in, in Vertigo. For much of the film, she's there just to be pretty. You know, you look at her. Tippy Hedren is even better because she can't act. I mean, why is Tippy Hedren in The Bird? She is in there to be so stolidly implacable and you look at her. Does she have an inner life? Does her character Melanie have any thoughts or anything? I don't think so. And Billy is kind of like that. He's just sort of good. He's a bit one-dimensional, but he's really good looking. Where the music is really interesting, I think, is it's written always surprises people, I think, because they often expect him to be more lush than he really is. He's pretty austere. Um, A lot of times he will use things that are somewhat familiar to you, like he loves triads, the simply da-da-bum, the sort of, you know, domi soul. Um, but he doesn't use them the way we are accustomed to. If it's a tonality, it is, and I use this word deliberately, a very queer one. Um, The rhythm is interesting in this opera in particular because it so often is about battle sounds. This is an opera where there are some things that are supposed to be literal sound quotations, like ships' bells and horns and drums and things like that. There are other kinds of things that are not just like the waves, but it's the waves under an emotional description. And then there are things that are feelings, nothing more than feelings, as it were. Um, So there are a lot of different kinds of symbols that you can play with in the opera. What will probably strike a lot of, of new opera goers to this piece, if you know any other opera, you'll say, where are the women? Because there is not one in this opera. Now that's an extreme case. It's really rare to have entirely male operas. Really, I can't think of any more. There must be a few, but not many. And that is a problem in terms of the way that we think about distributing sound through musical space. You don't have a lot of the upper register. You don't have any of those thrilling high notes. You're missing a lot of stuff. You have to come up with something that will replace it. And what Britain does to replace it, I think, is there are a lot of extended instrumental interludes. You're gonna listen to a lot of places where there's nobody talking, there's nobody singing. People are essentially in a lot of like the TV versions that you see on YouTube and et cetera, they're walking around and looking at stuff. They're on ship waiting. And notice that those blocks of time are there not only to present a particular kind of drama, but also to give you space so that when you come back to the voices, you can hear them again. Now, as far as the voices go, a lot of the stuff the officers sing are actually not very attractive and appealing. The good utopia comes in the vocal textures of the sailors singing together. And this is really maybe the central point. Quite often, it's the sound of men in harmony that's going to represent that possibility of a good utopia, which gets squelched at the end. Because what happens is the captain, like Claggart, succeeds in taking language from everybody. Nobody gets words anymore. It's not just Billy's emotional stoppage, it's by the end, the last real scene is the sailors are mutinying, but they're mutinying to a sound. They don't even have words anymore. And that's how you make them under control. So paying attention to things like that, I would say, and then an extremely odd, fascinating and enigmatic thing. We do not see the moment when Veer has to tell Billy he's gonna die. He goes into a room, they shut the door, and we don't know what's happening. What we get is this inconceivably strange succession of chords. Big block chords in different orchestrations that are very peculiarly related to one another. They almost seem completely individual at times. And some of them can be super loud, followed by something that's incredibly soft and all over the place. And we don't ultimately know what it means. We can make some stabs at it, but I think the important thing is that it probably means everything we think and more, because that's the spot in the opera where whatever infinity it's trying for, if it happens, it happened there, and we will never know. So, I wish you all great pleasure from this. It's an extraordinary piece. It's a very sad piece, but it's a really deep piece. It's, it's a really marvelous work. Thank you so much for guiding us through, leading our ship through this. We appreciate it. It's a foggy turf. Yes, indeed.
0: You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the Opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Operas Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.